Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. We're about to host our third Marriage Evolution Couples Retreat, Sherry. I almost corrected you on the number, but then I remember we did one. One pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. And we took a little break, like everybody did. Yeah. Do do you know what the worst part of this being our third one is? We're a little bit comfortable. We're a little bit uh, confident in our abilities. And you know what comfort and and, uh, confidence leads to? Arrogance. Procrastination, I was going to oh. say. Yes, arrogance also. <laughs> but like, I'm like, yeah, I can get that done. You know, I got plenty of time. Whereas the first couple, I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, the first one. How yeah. are you doing? Because you do like the food prep and stuff. How are you doing? Well, I was going to say the first one, um, we had some of the food prep done because we had invited a friend of ours, Kelly Miller. Did some catering. Friends that her husband her is husband, a chef. That's right. So he did some of the cooking. Um, there, now so your that cheap ass husband's like, no, you just do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess you know I'm doing pretty good. I've gathered my ideas, but it's not that I'm procrastinating. I'm just using some things that I've like tried and true, tested recipes. Yeah, to kind of fit a group setting. Yeah, yeah. So well, I'm, I'm definitely procrastinating. Kind of, kind I'm doing okay. I've got big ideas for the. You know, the... The the, formatting? The, yeah, the... But I have, yeah. The stuff we're going to talk about, and it's, you know, some of it's new, some of it's stuff we've talked about before, but I just don't have all my loose ends tied up yet. But it'll, it'll all come together. Poop isn't in a group. (laughs) There's that confidence, or as you would say, arrogance. (laughs) But I'm really excited about it. Um, The Marriage Evolution retreats with couples that we do, um, it's just, it's a, you know, if you're... Uh, trying to recover your marriage from the ravages of alcoholism. It's a great way to really have respect for that process and focus in and uh, spend some serious time. And the the folks that, be, because we are living under the same roof for three nights, um, we invite people that are already in some of our groups to come. Mm-hmm. And that first one was open to the whole world. And we were lucky that we didn't accidentally invite an axe murderer in there, but now it's kind yeah, of a vetting—it's kind of a vetting process to have it be, you know, from an internal group that we already know. Because I'm—I have like ninety-nine point nine percent confidence that none of the people are axe murderers. I mean, I really feel strongly <laughs> feeling like the odds are in your favor. Oh yeah, we're okay. all going to survive this encounter. <laughs> okay. It's going to be great. Some people might. Like that have been there in the past, wonder about our Colorado weather and whether they were going to survive the icy roads. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. But, um, well, I, and I was just going to say, I think that the benefit to being in this, you know, in this sort of yes, it's work and play, but that social setting of of as a couple that are working on you know recovery and sobriety. Like, how do you learn to socialize with? other people and you kind of feel I mean we all feel alone in each of our own individual recoveries and yeah. then you have this element of we're a couple we want to go and hang out but we don't want to drink and we don't want to be around a bunch of sloppy drunks yeah you know and what do you do so it's kind of a nice way to kind of connect with other couples yeah that are kind of in that because that's how Actually, that, let's that just be part, honest. We probably only host the marriage retreat just for us to have some social. Yeah, we have some friends this way. We have some non non drinking friends. That's a good point. I sure do enjoy it. So, if uh, if you're listening to this and you're like, "Hey, how can I get involved?" Best way is just to join one of our groups, get to know us, and then the next time we do a marriage evolution retreat, we will love to have you uh, participate with us. Uh, while I am kind of sideways promoting things, it's the end of January. It's, we're almost out of time for people to get their copy of our book, Sober Evolution, um, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. There, I got the subtitle right this time. But all you have to do is, all you have to do is search for Sober Evolution. The Kindle version is just 99 cents this month. And again, this is about us, not you, listener. 
Um, sure, we think it's a great book, and the reviews are awesome, and we hope you get something out of it. But more than anything, we are trying to jack up our book sales so that when it's time to find a publisher for our second book, we've got some really good stats. So even if you have no intention of buying it, don't pretend you don't know how to get on Amazon and buy a Kindle book. It, with the one-click option, it should take you all of about 15 seconds. It's the only book on Amazon titled Sober Evolution, all one word. Just ram those two words together. Search for it, Kindle version, 99 cents, and you'll be doing us a huge favor. Thank you to all the people that have already done it this month. Uh, this has has been good. We appreciate it. It hasn't been great, though, so... If you are like, every month, every week I listen to this guy yap on about this and um, I don't know, I don't know if I care about him that much or I don't know if, uh, or I figure other people are going to do it for me. Some other people are, but we need you. If uh, this podcast brings 99 cents of value to your life, then please get on the, the Amazon machine and buy a Kindle version of Sober Evolution before the end of January. Thank you very much. Probably the last time you'll hear about this but maybe not. If you would like to ask us a listener question, please send that listener question to matt at soberandunashamed.com. You will not get a professional answer because we are not professionals. We are not uh, psychologists or therapists, but you'll get some lived experience and all the experience we can muster from the relationships we've developed from other people in these situations. So send in your listener question. We've got a good batch. We we restarted collecting listener questions. We've got some great, we've got some deep ones. We've got some tough ones. In fact, um, next week's podcast is going to be a roundtable episode devoted entirely to addressing a listener question about child custody in the case of separation and divorce. And it's really a heartbreaking situation, very traumatic, and something that I think a lot of people are going to relate to. And we've got a great panel assembled that's going to address that. So um, often, really, lately, the listener questions become the subject of the entire episode because, uh, you know, nobody asks one-sentence questions. We usually get uh, a couple, two, three paragraphs of explanation and then the question. And so feel free to share. We would we love to address um, what's going on with the folks out there that are taking the time on a weekly or semi-weekly basis anyway to hear us ramble. So we'd love to, we'd love to uh, increase the stockpile of listener questions and uh, we'll get to as many of them as we can. Today's listener question, Sherry. My husband used to be like you, Matt. Being alone and away from me and the kids was like torture to him. Now he talks about divorcing me and leaving us so he can drink. Do you think this is just big talk or how he really feels? Mm. Uh, the email goes on to talk about how the kids can't take it anymore. She, in several places in the email, emphasizes the pain that the kids are in, in living in this dysfunctional family situation. What do you think, Sherry? Um, ugh, that sounds really awful. Um, I feel like... Behind that statement of, you know, he just wants, or his actions of being alone and wants to drink, and I think that's a lot of pain. Yeah. And shame. Yeah. So I don't think it's really how he feels. Maybe there's like, I feel like I deserve that because um, y'all would be better without me, or those sort of statements. I feel like that's not what they truly want, but that's what the, maybe depression and pain and shame is making them feel that they deserve. Um, but I do worry about the kids and her. Because yeah. you don't want to torture the children by by living in that sort of situation. Um, because it's not fair to them. They didn't ask to be a part of this. No one asked to be a part of alcohol. But they are truly innocent bystanders in yeah. this scenario. It's interesting and not surprising if you read the whole email... She talks about the kids, prioritizing the kids, the kids' pain, can't can't do this to the kids any longer, over and over throughout the email. And then, you know, references the situation with her husband. You know, she takes some time to reference that, but it's it's definitely 
from an emotional standpoint and priority standpoint, it's it's kind of secondary. Like, how do I deal with this while still prioritizing yeah. the kids? And I think that is so common. I, you know, I, I know I sometimes lean pretty hard on gender roles and perhaps to the frustration of some of our listeners, but something changes in a woman's brain when she has babies and this nurturing instinct gets kicked on and it's, it's in control from then on out for the rest of their lives. And so her mothering instinct is at the forefront here. And she, you talk about the kids being in pain and the drinker being in pain. Well, she's in pain because she the kids is in, are in pain. so much pain because yeah. of the kid, the drink, the pain these kids are in. Yeah. There is just no question. And so in direct answer to her question, I think you're right. Um, you know, the, the kind of two diverging thoughts I have again, just to refresh if the question is, do you think this is big talk or how he really feels? I don't honestly think it matters. I think there are two possibilities. I think the disease progression might have gotten to a place where he's gone all leaving Las Vegas at this point and he's ready to go drink himself to death. That's entirely possible. It's also possible that that's just another form of manipulation. You know, he might have tried the... um, Oh yes, I'll try to slow down. I'll try to cut down. I yeah, I drink too much. I'm going to drink less. I'm going to put rules around it. I'm going to do all that. He might have tried that, and you know he's recognized it's not going to work, and recognized that his wife is still super frustrated with him, and so now he's just going a different direction, and it's almost like a woe is me. How much pity can you have on me? I'm going to drink myself to death. So it it could be. You know, it could be really genuinely how it feels, or it could be manipulation. I don't think it matters. Either way, detachment is her only hope for the sake of the kids, for her sake, and potentially for his sake as well. Mm-hmm. What do you agree? Yeah, I think that um, it's a hard road to navigate, and I think that survival of the majority of the family is what's important and I know that sounds weird for me to say it like that like the majority of the family survival of the fittest sort of thing yeah but you want to break the cycle um of living in an addictive household for those kids so you do have and to save yourself you do have to say well if that's what you would rather do whether, like you said, whether it's from manipulation and gaslighting or he wants to go leaving Las Vegas or that fear of making those changes. Because I know that fear can be very paralyzing and they think this is the easy way out. That they can just have what they want because the addicted brain is taken over. I think that they have to think about the benefit for the majority of the family and... Sadly, if that is detaching and physically detaching or removing, you know, as well as emotionally detaching, which I'm sure they're probably already there. I think that's the only way that you're going to, I mean, because I just think that the pain of the parent that's, she's like suffering with the kids. Well, and and what's her alternative to roll up her sleeves and try to get him in a program or try to convince him that his life is worth it or try to convince him that um, he needs to seek help and he needs to go to uh, an AA meeting. or whatever. Like, none of that works. And I'm it's not been saying that over and I'm not saying you're saying that. I'm, no, I'm saying, and it's not that, we're not saying like, oh, tough love is the only way to work because it's not that tough love. It's survive, keeping yourself in, you know, safe. Well, and emotionally and, safe. And like That's Amber, what detachment is. Like Amber Hollingsworth distinguished on last week's podcast, Amber from the Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel, she said, you know, the first step in detachment is basically, all right, you go do you. Oh, you're going to, you want to be alone so you can drink? Fine. Go be alone so you can drink. It isn't, you know, the first step in detachment is much, very much more so that emotional than yeah. it is, you know, we live in different households, whatever that looks like. But... Um, you know, it's it's the only thing. There's no amount of pressure you can put on this individual for him to change his mind. Yeah. The only thing you can do is let him let him have his way and see what happens. Yeah. And that's terrifying to say, but well, and, and, it's, that, and you got to do it for the benefit of the kids. Yeah, and I'm just 
you know, because there's that tough love theory. Like, that came out, I think, when we were in high school growing up. Scared straight. Yeah, scared straight, tough love. Doesn't work. You know, just force them to do it if you're the parent. You know, that sort of thing. So you can't do that with anybody. But, you know, the detachment isn't you being cruel to them, the addict. It's you being, you know, loving of yourself. And the kids. And the kids. Yep. So... I mean, it's it's clear in this email that her emotional, her heart, her priority is the kids. And there's nothing that's going to change that. She can maybe, and I don't know, right? The, the email wasn't this detailed. But she might have some kind of conflict, some kind of internal conflict. This is my husband. I should love him as much as I love my kids. I would encourage her to erase that from her mind. She She, again, this nurturing instinct there's a high degree of likelihood that her true feelings for her kids are stronger than her feelings for her husband. And that probably eats at her a little bit. I would encourage her to give yourself grace about that. It's just how it works. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with prioritizing your kids. And you're not, you know, because that's the way you feel, there's nothing wrong with you. So go with it. Go with it. It was all over this email how important your kids are to you. So Take care of them. Take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Sherry, people join our Echoes of Recovery program after, in in large kind of numbers, after their alcoholic attempts sobriety and not before when they are in complete chaos. This is just a trend that I've noticed. We have lots of people in Echoes whose alcoholic is still actively drinking. We have lots of people in Echoes whose alcoholic is in early sobriety and they're trying. Maybe there's relapses, maybe there's not. We have lots of people in Echoes um, who have a loved one that they're still with that has serious sobriety, a year plus. And we have people in Echoes who have parted company from their alcoholic. You're just laughing because this is exactly what I say on our introductory phone calls with people. I wasn't going to out you at that. I just thought You're my just eyes sitting over there giggling, rolling in my snicker. Sound like we're doing an intake call right now. <laughs> But the point is, I know that there are so many more people that are in it right now that are still dealing with an active alcoholic that don't reach out and don't seek help, whether it's from us or Alan or wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not trying to make this a pure commercial. I just know that we see more people once their alcoholic has attempted sobriety and they've realized, oh, shit, that didn't solve anything. I thought this guy or this woman stopping drinking was going to fix all our problems and it didn't. Now I guess I got to now I guess I got to reach out to those two chuckleheads and see about joining their stupid group because it's not getting better. Well, I I think there are a variety of reasons why people don't join us when they're in it. That's that's the kind of term we use when the alcoholic is still drinking and the chaos and trauma is currently present. I think there's a. Do you have, do you have any feeling for why it seems more people than not wait until there's sobriety before they they join us? I know I'm just kind of hitting you, and I have notes. So, do you have thoughts? Wait, you you have words to say? I'm not shocked. Um, mm-hmm. I think that for me, if I was putting myself back in the the mindset when you were still drinking, but I was seeking, I wanted to receive help. I think that shame and embarrassment. And keeping that secret. Right there. (laughs) Number two on my list. Would have held me back. Also, I would have thought somehow me getting help for me. Like, I didn't recognize that was a necessary tool. Mm -hmm. And that I would have been abandoning you somehow. Like, I know that Al-Anon, it does talk a lot about, you know, this. That it's not for someone who is you know, has their loved one who is in total sobriety because it gives you the tools. But I think that shame and embarrassment, um, yeah, it kind of keeps you... You are so good. You are so good cold. With no preparation, you hit three of my four. I take painstaking notes and spend so much time preparing for these discussions. And then you just, bam, right off the cuff. (coughs) Whatever. You're funny. Pardon me. Three of the four things I was going to say. 
The only other one I was going to say is when you're in it and your alcoholic's still drinking, it is such a state of complete chaos and uh, not knowing what to expect on a daily basis and nervous system dysregulation that you're just so busy. That's the other thing. Like mm-hmm. you're just, how on earth am I supposed to reach out? I'm trying to, you know, the, the house is on fire. I'm trying to put out the fire, yeah. right? I'll deal with uh, rebuilding later. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, yeah, the the and and the one I want to hit the most on on this list is the shame piece. You know, the, the shame is universal, transcends alcoholism, whether you're the drinker or the non-drinker. It's it's stronger for the drinker, I think. Um, but when a drinker reaches out for help, that takes a lot because you're admitting I have a problem. I've done something that is shameful, and I've probably done it for a lot of years. When you are living in an alcoholic relationship as the loved one, the shame comes from, I can't believe I'm still in this situation. I can't believe I've gotten myself in this situation and I'm allowing it to persist. So I'm here to tell you, don't wait until that person finds sobriety before you reach out for help. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's literally millions and millions of people in that situation. It feels like you're alone, especially if your drinker is high-functioning. And they're all about secrecy and hiding what's going on. So it feels like you're alone because you don't realize there's probably somebody else on your street that is in the same situation, but you're not alone. And so don't wait until the smoke clears to ask for help. Ask for help when the fire is still blazing. That's my message. I just know, you know, and the only reason I wanted to bring that up in this episode is because I have noticed it seems like recently people that are joining us, it's more people that have gotten over at least that initial hump where their loved one has sobriety. But we specialize in chaos. We are good at in it. Um, and not just. And when I say us, I don't, I'm not just talking about Matt and Sherry. Yeah. I'm talking about the all the people in the group. They are really good. And it never ceases to amaze me how when somebody comes in and they're telling the same story we've heard hundreds of times, how that group just... Um, you know, embraces them and like forms a circle around them to protect them and says, we've been there. Um, let us be a part of carrying your burden for you. And what's the, the beauty of uh, peer support, the beauty of our group and others is uh, those people who have gotten themselves out of the chaos, they really want to give back. That That's something that's fascinating about this whole thing, whether it's the alcoholic, the drinker, or the loved one, once you get to a safer place, you want to be a part of the solution for other people. We certainly did. Look at what we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we do this work. But it, it's almost it's definitely a universalism that people want to give back. And they say, I want to tell my story, and or I want to write my story, or I want to be a part of uh, support groups on the kind of helping side as opposed to the receiving help side. And the beauty of peer support is the belonging. You you know, you immediately become both the student and the teacher when you start to share your story because somebody needs to hear what you have to say. Well, and I don't think it's a negative for me to say this. There is feeling valued because for so long you had had low self-esteem and felt worthless, whether you were the That's exactly addict right. or the person living in that shame of, I can't believe I'm in this relationship. That's right. So not only is it sharing your story and, and trying to break that help you know break the cycle help others out it's feeling of value yeah and letting your pain not just go unheard and unnoted um that's exactly right yep i love it i love it um so all of the topics that we're talking about today are kind of loosely related to each other i want to transition into talking about the kind of circular event that is drinking, addiction, and isolation, and how they feed off each other. Um, You know, the complexity of the issue of alcoholism and recovery has so many examples of this chicken or the egg. Which one really comes first? Is it the isolation or is it the drinking? Because the drinking causes isolation, but isolation also makes you want to drink. And the last thing I would ever do is blame the spouse of an alcoholic for that alcoholic's alcoholism. That's not fair. That's not right. 
but there but I think it's also naive to not acknowledge that there is this symbiotic this disgusting symbiotic relationship between feeling isolated and drinking more and drinking more and feeling more isolated. So I want to start by using an example and then I want to talk about our relationship. This example is, this is a real life example. This is someone that I know, I respect. I know him relatively well. Um, This is a very gentle, kind, loving, educated, intelligent, hardworking man very achievement oriented. One of the things that he and I have in common is that we were both encouraged to succeed as children. And at some point that encouragement shifted from an external force, parents, to an internal force. And he and I both drive ourselves to succeed to, to what could be argued is an unhealthy degree. Um, But so achievement oriented, this guy loves his kids, uh, sacrifices for his kids. um, And he has, you know, to jump to the the kind of punchline, the difficult part of the story, he has endured a really, really terrible divorce. And everything I've seen him do as he's moved through this process is for the benefit of the kids. If he has to give in to a demand or not, you know, not push in an area he always weighs what's best for the kids before he makes that decision. So just an incredible father, someone I'm really envious of the way he he parents. So not a selfish bone in this guy's body. And in his relationship before the marriage ended, he grew increasingly lonely. I don't know the details of whatever his wife's demons are. And I don't know that because he doesn't drop her in the grease. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, She's a terrible person and blah, 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 blah. And that's why this happened. He, But he does talk about how the relationship grew increasingly distant over time. And, to you know, in loneliness, you know, one of his go-tos was he would stay up late after the family went to bed and watch Sports Center and drink beer or wine or whatever. And so that's how this slippery slope starts, right? He didn't go out to the bars and pick up women and cheat on it. Like he didn't do anything bad. He just, um, you know, had an unfulfilling relationship and would stay up late and watch TV and drink to soothe the pain of the unfulfilling relationship. Such a common story, such a relatable story. And doesn't paint him as, you know, an evil person as the word alcoholic, the stigmatized word alcoholic can tend to do. Mm-hmm. You with me? Yes. And then she divorced him because he was an alcoholic. So what he did, you know, I don't think there's any blame on either side in that relationship necessarily. I don't think what happened to him is his fault. This is why I feel comfortable using the word victim for the alcoholics. I don't think what she did, I don't think divorcing your husband because he's an alcoholic, it's hard to lay blame on her. I Again, I don't know what her story is. I don't know what what made her feel the need to isolate. Um, but whatever that is, I feel empathy for her. And I, I, I wish she had earlier found a way to get help for whatever that is. So I don't blame her either. I don't blame either of them for this conundrum that is literally millions of people suffer through all the time. Like this is a this is a common thing. I do have some blame to share with the drinking culture in our country and the lack of education that we have for what a dangerous substance alcohol is and all maladaptive coping mechanisms and how when we see ourselves leaning on something for medicinal purposes, that should scare the shit out of us immediately. We shouldn't use words like, Oh, I use alcohol to relax. It helps me sleep at night. That Those are bad things. That's a bad sign. If you can't relax on your own, you can't sleep without alcohol, you are in trouble. Whether you've crossed the line into addiction or not, that is yet to be seen. But eventually, that's a troubling, troubling factor. Do you agree? I do. And it doesn't have to... And you kind of forgot to say self-soothing or as entertainment. Yeah. Those are two things I think that some people use it for. Or any other sort of addiction. Gaming, shopping. Those are self-soothing and entertainment. Agreed. Yeah, it's, if, you, if you feel even the slightest tinge of need for these maladaptive coping mechanisms, 
you're not comfortable in a part at a party. You get bored and you don't know what to do with yourself and you do the same thing every time you get bored. These are huge red flags, but we societally don't see them as red flags. And that's a problem. I want to talk a little bit about our relationship again. I want to be super clear. I'm not blaming this guy's wife for their divorce. And I'm not blaming you either, Sherry, for my alcoholism. But what is your recollection of how things went in our relationship and what things maybe caused me, because I was ignorant, to medicate with alcohol in reaction? You understand what I'm saying? I thought there was going to be more to that. So what was what were some of the things that I see that caused you to self-medicate? Yeah, how or? did this thing spiral where, uh, you know, bad thing happened, I drink more, I drink more, bad thing happened? What Do you see that relationship? Yeah, I think there was some communication issues. Whether it be you felt like you couldn't complain or share because you didn't want to look like you were complaining about maybe some of the stresses of the bakery because you knew it would worry me. Because that was our financial security. So I feel like you kind of took and you withheld information and you took that on yourself. So that was part of your um, need to self-soothe and to medicate away. Which then that just spiraled more into anxiety and worry for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were growing our family at the time. So there was I was busy with a lot of the kids stuff. Um, young kids stuff. Because I... I worked at the bakery, but I worked at home more. Um, so I think that I'm also wondering if maybe um, when you did open up, if maybe I also had decided, oh, well, this is an open invitation for me to complain about my home life. Not really fully understanding the stress and pressure of the bakery because I know I had said things like, well, this is what you wanted to do. Like, you could have had a corporate job still, you know. Um, We wouldn't be having to worry about, like, finding our own insurance if you worked for a company, you know. And, you know, we wouldn't be in financial straits because we'd know there'd be an income. Even if, you know, you worked for a couple of companies that closed down. But, you know, there's uh, lots of them out there you could have gone to, Mm -hmm. you know. But you also, you know, but then we also went... I'm just assuming these are some of the things that would have been running through your mind is because there are things that I had said to you in the heat of a moment or when I was stressed and scared. Hmm. So I wasn't being a good communicator with saying, hey, these are things that worry me. I waited until maybe the door was open for you to share and then I would like blame you for some of the stuff that was scary to me. Interesting. Um, I didn't expect you to go there. I didn't... uh... That's interesting how much of that you kind of own. And there's, you know, I can tell you're getting kind of emotional about it. That's in, that's interesting. I mean, even though like us owning the bakery, like it was supposed to be that you would be home with the kids more and yeah. you wouldn't travel, you know. The, but, you know, there's like the grass isn't always greener on either side. Like, you know, there was that responsibility of managing and managing other people. And you can't control other people that were employees couldn't control whether or not the weather was going to be bad and it would make it a bad business day, you know. And then I started to anticipate some of those, like if the weather was bad or, if, you know, I knew like it's the slow time of the year for us. Like, so I was already building up some of that anxiety because we were immature. We hadn't had great communication skills and we weren't, I guess... For lack of a better word, we weren't really empathetic or respectful to each other's feelings. If if I had it to do over again, first of all, I wouldn't have become a drinker. But, I mean, that's the easy one, right? When you talk about communication, I think regardless of alcohol or lack of alcohol, I don't think alcohol plays into the fact that most couples don't do a very good job of respecting the fact that if you, if you are sharing something that's bothering you, my approach, and it is now, my approach needs to now be, you know, basically lead with empathy. What What's causing this? Where is this, 
is this pain from um, from a childhood experience? Is this pain from you having different hormones than I do? Is this is this pain because you just go through life seeing and experiencing things different than me? My approach communication. If you talk about just communication, my approach for in our young married life, if you had a problem, was let me tell you how I handle that. Yeah. And then you just do it my way. Yeah, and I would I, I would just question all of those thoughts that you were running through your mind. Like, uh, what is this coming from? Where is it stemming? Maybe it's just listening. And, well, and maybe, I mean, but I mean, but like, don't try to like analyze your partner in a way. Like, you know, I mean, I know you're saying these are good things, but first just listen because it well, might come out it, and then you can maybe like start the communication process you don't have to communicate because you're thinking those thoughts i i would lead i guess what i'm saying is i would lead with curiosity instead of solution oh okay rather than me telling you oh you're worried about you know that uh the kids had a snow day when you already had a full agenda planned and you're worried that the kids didn't get enough attention when you didn't expect them to be here and you carried through with your plans when, when you share things like that back then, I would say, oh, Sherry, you're being ridiculous. You are an adult. You have responsibilities. You're doing your responsibilities. It's not your fault it snowed. And it's not your fault the kids were home. Now, I would say, okay, I have a lot of respect for that. Because even though I don't feel that same way emotionally, I know how important that is to you. I know how hurtful that is on your heart when the kids sit around bored because... Um, you are doing other things. You're doing work or community or church or whatever related things and ignoring them. Instead of me telling you you're ridiculous, do it my way, I would now say, wow, I respect that that hurts you. It doesn't hurt me. I'm not going to climb in the pit of despair about that with you, but I appreciate the fact that it hurts you. And so when I'm talking about communication, I'm just saying, I think a lot of people struggle to put on the other person's shoes and try to see it through their eyes as opposed to just telling them how we see it. And that's a huge problem with communication in relationships regardless of alcohol. Yeah. So one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about how this isolation creates drinking and drinking creates isolation is how much we argued. We argued a lot. We, knock on some wood, we don't, hardly argue at all anymore like really almost not at all and we used to argue a lot lack of respect for each other poor communication skills yep thinking we had the solution immaturity Mm -hmm. but certainly my alcohol consumption was unattractive to you and when something's unattractive you're the kind of person that's not going to hold back And so, you know, I think we just, we argued a lot, fueled by the alcohol, fueled by the alcohol because I was drinking and I was therefore irrational and fueled by the alcohol because you were witnessing the alcohol and you didn't have a ton of respect for me. Yeah. Is that all fair? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that part of that too, like, you know, um, you're mentioning the isolation, but yeah, you're, I kept thinking... How do you not see that coming home and drinking every evening, you know, cause that's what you started out doing. Yeah. Like a couple cocktails every night and then that's it right. was just straight liquor. And I'm like, how do you see that that's not a problem and a wasteful financial problem? Like, so then it just made me so unimpressed with you that I couldn't like, I lost respect for you. Absolutely. So then of course, who wants to be around someone who, you know, doesn't really like to be around you. Right. I mean, and I would busy myself in other parts of the house or with the kids just to not be around you. That's right. And then that's half right. the time I would, toward, you know, towards the end, I'd be like, oh, God, let's hope that he just drank a lot to pass out, um, you know, soon after the kids are in bed. So I didn't have to sit and, like, talk with you or communicate with you or watch a movie with you or, you know. That's right. And, be a couple with you. And that all builds, right? And whether I was able to even recognize it or not, if if I 
if you know, I'm having my first of my couple of cocktails after work, like you said, and that disgusts you. And so I say, hey, did you hear about this? And I'm just talking about something. You know, if you're disgusted enough looking at me, your answer is going to be different than if you're not. So it's just like a, a coldness in the um, the communication, right? So mm-hmm. you and I didn't back then understand how dangerous it is for a couple to tease each other too. Um, I've learned a lot, right? Not just about alcohol recovery, but about relationships. And and I think, I think I, you know, you and I both, I think, go to great lengths to not tease each other anymore, whereas we used to. So if I said something and you were a little bit disgusted with me, you wouldn't think twice about, you know, taking a shot at whatever I had said. Having the the opposite opinion just for sake of stirring it up or, or not stirring it up, but just not agreeing with me. I wasn't someone that you wanted to go out of your way to agree with. So all these, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's all these subtle pieces to the communication that were just these little jabs. But then also, if and I went did both dis- ways too. This yeah, isn't just you. If I did disagree with you and you felt that you were very much in the right frame of mind and the right mindset and you understood the whole thing because you for the longest time your immaturity your upbringing your personality whatever it was you were very black and white yes there's right or wrong that's right good and bad you couldn't see gray area divorce was bad Mm -hmm. therefore my family that has divorce in it that's not the way to bring not the way to have a family you know like so there wasn't a lot of gray areas and so you were also very confident slash arrogant in your um, decisions. Because for you, even though maybe you didn't verbalize some of your opinions out loud to me, your brain was always going. So you could have had a whole complete turnabout of an opinion without even giving me an inkling of what led you to that. Yep. You know, and so then did I want to argue with you? Did I want to hear how you were right and I was wrong? Yeah. So even though sometimes I wouldn't refrain from sharing my opinion, I would agree with you because I didn't want to have an argument. And then that made me build up resentments. Like, I can't really be myself in this relationship. Yeah. I can't really speak my mind. I, you know, sort of that, you know, just that I can't stand in a I don't really like this person. And there, there are the parts of the relationship that we're, we are consciously aware of. And then there are the undertones, the subconscious piece. I come home, I'm stressed, and you're not all that excited that I'm home. Mm-hmm. You're not excited for valid reasons, right? I have become unattractive and someone that you're not interested in being around because of the alcohol. Well, your distaste for me just encourages me to drink more. Because yeah. I'm doing a little bit of you, soothing, as you said. Yeah, a little or bit of me- you medicating. need like, you know, a loving hug. And I am like stiff-armed. Like, yeah. uh, you know, it's just that unintended. Because I, like you've said on the podcast, I can't really, my body can't lie. Nope. On behalf. So if you really needed love and comfort, you know, even if you're sober. I mean, there were times that I certainly did, like when your grandparents passed away. But there were also times where I was like... Well, this is a self-made issue. Yep. And you're feeling sorry for yourself, but these are the decisions. So I can't give you a lot of empathy, so I would stiffen up. Yep. And I couldn't be loving and kind. I mean, there were times, it's not all bad, but there were times that I could definitely be empathetic. But a lot of the times. And then after years of it, the resentment was just too much. Yeah. You walked in and the whole house fell. I felt like... Everybody was like, oh, fuck, he's home. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great thing to do to your family. Strongly recommend it. Everyone <laughs> should dive right in. Um, yeah, no, okay. So I'm glad we talked about our experience. You know, when we talk about loneliness and isolation, I think people think of physical separation. And there was some of that. Mostly for me, that was Sunday nights. Because... I was getting ready to transition back into the work week and 
that would bring a great deal of both anxiety and sadness for me because the weekend was over. And the weekend symbolized, for most of my drinking career, even no matter what the rules are I had around drinking, most of the time the weekend was uh, you can drink as much as you want. And so going back into some kind of restraint and also the responsibilities of work was a really sad time for me. And so often on Sunday nights, we've talked about this, I would go into our basement and I would watch sports until the sports was over and then I'd watch some stupid show that was meaningless so I could just sit down there and drink by myself. So in the pure form of physical isolation, I did do some of that. But being the person that I am who constantly wants to talk and check in and communicate, a lot of the isolation was emotional isolation. We would we would have conversations, but I could tell you were contrary or you were um, disinterested. Uh, like you said, just subtle things like is that hug a real hug or is that a hug out of a obligatory hug because you just got home from work? Things like that. And that really, you know, that contributes. That contributes. Again, last thing I would ever want to do is blame you. If I had never started drinking, none of this would have happened. So it's alcohol's fault. It's society's fault. It's partially my fault. Uh, it's definitely not your fault. You were reacting in a natural way, but the natural way to react feeds. They, these things just feed on each other. Mm-hmm. So... One of the reasons that I talk about, and we now talk about intimacy so much, not sex, but emotional intimacy, is because emotional intimacy and trust are inextricably linked. And one of the fears that I have for folks that are listening and folks that that we work with is that they see the lack of intimacy in their relationship and they treat that as a casualty of war. They say, listen, we have so many other problems, so many communication problems. My spouse is an active alcoholic or my spouse is an early sobriety. The last thing I want to think about is intimacy. That is just, you know, it's lost. It's gone for now. It's gone forever, however they look at it. But it is not the main issue. And as people treat emotional intimacy as a side item, you know, It's the baked potato and the steak dinner. You can either eat it or not. Who cares? I want to focus on the steak dinner, the the steak and the steak dinner. I think that's a huge mistake. I'm growing increasingly convinced that intimacy, emotional intimacy, isn't a side item. It is the main course. Well, that's hard to lay out like that trust and be met with like ridicule or arguments or put downs like when you open yourself up to be vulnerable which emotional intimacy is about vulnerability like going back and trusting your addict partner again with your feelings and emotions that's right you know like and then you don't know how you're going to be met that is very logical to step away from that and look at them as unsafe and you can't feel uns you know you can't feel emotional intimacy if you feel unsafe so it's really hard to reconcile, but I think there is some, like, like that you're giving it everything you can in the relationship when you keep going back to try to connect with your addict. Yeah, and the addict is trying to connect with you too. And you're just, you're both building a bridge from opposite sides of the river and you didn't do a very good job with the engineering and architecture because you're not, the bridges aren't meeting at the same place. Yeah. And so I guess that's the, that's the message that I want to leave folks with for this episode. When we talk about emotional intimacy, yes, there are many steps and physical intimacy and sexual satisfaction, all of it. There are many steps to getting it back, and it ultimately leads to to trust building. But don't focus on the whole shebang. Focus on the first step. And so the first step is for to me to me, and this can and and you know I'm I'm 
for someone who talks about gender as much as I do, in this area, I'm getting away from gender roles because I'm re- recognizing the more people we talk to, um, it's not a universalism that the man slash alcoholic is the one with the higher libido. It's often, it, that's definitely the majority case, but there's lots of situations where the libido is higher with the woman who is not the alcoholic or, you know, any, any mix combination of situations. So I'm just going to say that the person, the step one is there's usually one person in the relationship who is looking for connection through physical connection, right? The way I'm going to connect with you is when we connect physically and there will also be an emotional connection. In our case, that was me. That's what I wanted. And I could verbalize that, right? Step one is for you, the person that doesn't have those feelings, to not look at that like I'm gross, I'm horny, I'm a pig. And to recognize that that's a natural, acceptable normal feeling that a human being would have. Right? Yeah. I didn't say you need to have all the sex I ever wanted. Yeah. I said you you need to recognize that it doesn't make me a disgusting individual because my pathway to emotional connection is through physical connection. Okay? Fair? Fair. Now, the people that are on my side of the fence, we've got work to do as well. We have to recognize... That the person who can't stand to be around us physically, that is disgusted by us, um, they aren't doing that because they're prudish or broken or cold or mean. They're doing that because they're in pain. And it's important for the people on my side of the fence to recognize that and not force something that's not comfortable. Does that, does all that make sense? You're looking at me like, where are you going here? Yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking because I'm like, this doesn't seem like how it's, I'm just trying to figure out how it's tying in. Yeah, me too. It's not super clear, (laughs) is it? Yeah, so I'm thinking like we were talking about emotional intimacy. Right. But now you're talking about physical intimacy. So I think that it's hard for the person who's been the victim and received the wrath of the behavior to try to like open up. And that's, that's where I'm like, I'm with you with the bridge analogy. Like you're building bridges, but they're not connecting. Right. But that piece that you're talking about of step one Uh of, of your theory is, yeah, that's a respect piece for respecting the other person's desires and, and their initial way to connect. But there has to be a respect and there has to be signs of improvement. There has to be accomplishments. There has to be tangible things that make you as the loved one want to go that step. I'm not even suggest. you mean the step of physical, of well, just sex? that, just that step of like, yes that but also then like letting your guard down enough to like be like okay how do I appreciate this about this person let me bring it home for you by going back to our relationship our our literal experience that we went through the entry into emotional connection for me was through physical connection and I you were cold and distant and prudish and I thought broken. And so my thought was, I'm your husband. You need to get over this. And, you know, you need to um, understand how important this is for me. Now, knowing what I know now, what the way I would view this is the opposite. I would look at this and say, oh, she is unattracted to me. She is uninterested. So my entry into emotional connection isn't going to work. She doesn't have any any interest in that. So I've got to go. I've got to do the redesign and the re-engineering of the bridge. And I've got to go find a way to meet her where she is. And I have to appreciate that the pain that she's in, and it it is legitimate. And 
I need to show empathy and I need to be inquisitive and I need to try to understand where that's coming from. Rather than try to convince her, you're my wife and this was part of the deal and you're not giving me what I need in this relationship. And again, I'm not talking about just sex. I'm talking about the physical connection as entry into the emotional connection. You aren't there for me, Sherry. I don't feel like you give me the support I need. I have a very stressful work situation. This is so hard. And I come home to a cold shoulder that's killing me and it's forcing me to drink more. All of that can be true, but the solution isn't for you just to bow down and give in to my needs. The solution is for me to understand what am I doing that is driving you away? Why am I so unattractive? Am I a bad listener? When you when you share your concerns, do I just try to solve your problems for you? Do I insist that um, you know my needs aren't getting any attention, so you need to attend to my needs as opposed to I need to create an environment where you have concern for my needs? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a better yeah that's a better explanation. But it starts with step one. Step one is you appreciating that my way is not not wrong. And me appreciating that your inability to do it my way isn't wrong either. <laughs> Neither of us are wrong. I can't tell you how often we hear, yeah, fine, I'll quit drinking. But if. when are you going to work on your side? You're, you're not a good <laughs> wife. You don't know how to be a good wife. Yeah. We hear that all the time. The lack of mutual respect and understanding of appreciation for the individual. Yeah. Yeah. Because so this, you've been, yeah, because as looking at an addict, you've, you've kind of been hidden away and we can't see the real you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. This toxic situation, this bad communication, this unattractiveness of alcohol spirals and it just keeps getting worse and worse. We're emotionally isolated. My side drinks more. Your side gets pissed off. We're more emotionally isolated. My side drinks more. Your side, more resentment. And so we've got to work on that. That's got, and the first step is acknowledging that my way is not wrong and your way is not wrong. And that mutual respect is necessary before the work, the real work can start. And then step two, which we're not going to go into, is alcohol's got to leave the relationship. Doesn't fix anything, but it is a prerequisite. Well, I would almost argue that yeah. that has to go first because then that self-loathing or that false sense of self-worth that the addict tries to cover up, the alcoholic tries to cover up, like that has to go because that bad version of ego needs to go because if you have that and like you, Matt, were a my way is the right way sort of false sense of arrogance and self-security or self... Self-grandeur. Yes, that's a good word, grandeur. <laughs> like, that had to go because you wouldn't have been able to acknowledge that I well, have an opinion. You yeah. said it all the time. Like, you used to really not value my opinion. Sometimes you would throw me a bone just because you felt like, oh, well, her name's on the business too, so... I'll see what she thinks about doing this at our bakery. I, I, I mean, and I, now you're like, well, now I respect it because I see that she's an individual who has experiences and has a filter on life different than mine. I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, this is another case where maybe I'm trying to oversimplify step one. Maybe the reason sobriety, recovery, relationship recovery are so hard and so many people can't, can't, figured that out is because it is all complex. There's a lot of things that have to happen at once. Yeah. I got to stop drinking. I got to have respect for you. You got to have respect for me. Or at least the attempt and the recognition that alcohol is a problem. I mean, I feel like, you know, we had said in the beginning of these programs that we don't want to call people an alcoholic. You don't mind taking that title, but a lot of people do feel offended by it. But if alcohol is causing problems and is a problem for you, whether you're the loved one or the drinker, then it's a problem. Yeah. And that's what needs to be addressed, that you need to not have this self-medication, this self-soothing, this entertainment piece, you know, whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah. So even if it's an attempt at sobriety and you see your partner doing that, then that can lead the door. Real true attempts, not fake fucking, oh, I'm going to do dry January and I'm going to act real nice (laughs) and then I'm going to go February 1st and by Groundhog Day, I'm an asshole again. You can't do that. Very timely. (laughs) You uh, looked at the calendar when you made your analogy. I love it. Bottom line, uh, when we talk about intimacy being a solution, we're talking about emotional intimacy and how you get there starts with sobriety being that prerequisite, but then also respect for each other and where each other's coming from. And with the damage of an alcoholic relationship, so often that respect is, it's gone. It's, it's so hard to get back. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.